Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Even in today's inflationary times, the word millionaire has a certain cachet. With a little self-discipline and the power of compound interest, millionaire status is available to federal employees who make wise use of the Thrift Savings Plan. Here with advice on how to get there, retired federal manager Abe Grungold. And Abe, let me ask you the million-dollar question. Did you retire as a TSP millionaire? Tom, I was very, very lucky in my federal career, and I hit the $3 million mark during my federal career. Uh, I was blessed to have achieved that goal. Wow. All right. So you know how to do it. And let's say someone is simply trying to get to the $1 million level anyhow, what's, how do you do it? What's, what's, what should the basic practices be to get there? So if you are a young federal employee and you want to be in the elite TSP Millionaires Club, it's basically a double-edged sword to blaze the path to get there. First of all, you have to contribute as much as you can afford, and at a minimum, the 5% employee contribution where you get the 5% match from the government. And the other side of the sword is to invest as aggressively as you can tolerate. And everyone has a different uh, level of risk, but you have to invest somewhat aggressively in order to get there. And that's basically it. It would be also uh, ideal if you could reach out to someone in your organization who has achieved the million-dollar status and get some pointers from that person. I suppose it's possible, but if you stick with the G Fund, is it possible to get there? But maybe even if you can, it means you had a greater upside potential, sounds like. Well, you can achieve a million-dollar status solely investing in the G Fund but you would have to maximize your contribution to the maximum allowed by the Internal Revenue Service. And you would have to put in a very long career, probably 35 to 40 years in order to get to that level. It's very difficult solely investing in the G Fund. I had many uh, coworkers of mine who solely invested in the G Fund during their career, and they did not achieve the million-dollar status. Yeah, so the G right. Okay, so if you want to not work forever, then you have to be a little bit aggressive. And over the years, the non-G funds, they've fluctuated more, but they've ratcheted up way greater returns long-term, fair to say. Yes, you know, certainly the stock market historically – has always had its upwards and downward turns uh, for many different types of reasons. And over a long federal career, if you're going to put in 30 years as a federal employee, you're going to receive the upside of the stock market over your career. And you will benefit from those uh high returns as as your balance keeps growing year after year. I saw it during my career, and uh, I was just amazed. And maybe discuss the implications of reaching that million dollar or two million, or in your case, three million. You're definitely a one percenter or a tenth of a one percenter in terms of TSP savers. 
But what does that mean in terms of what you can do financially when you do retire? There's a meaning to the million. Well, that is a very big question for every uh, federal employee, what to do with their TSP when they do retire. It can supplement your income. You can go on some nice vacations. You can do some charitable donations. You could do any number of things. But for me, I saw it as a treasure chest in the event that I have to go to a long-term care facility, both for me and my spouse. In the event that day happens, we would have enough resources to handle that type of situation. So, yes, I do enjoy my TSP withdrawals, but I want to make sure that I have sufficient funds in the event it's needed for long-term care. Got it. Yeah, so that insurance is a great feeling to have because you know what long-term care costs these days. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. What are some mistakes people make that retard their ability to get to that million-dollar level, would you say? Well, certainly you do not want to panic when there are some downward trends in the market. And every time you panic, you sell your shares. And when you sell your shares, you recognize a loss. Uh, That is just not the right thing to do. The best thing to do is just to weather out the downward trends in the market. And I have done that my entire federal career. And I had just waited uh, six months to a year, and I found that it had bounced back. Now, another uh, thing that people really need to be watchful of are these uh, investment forums like on Facebook, where there are people out there giving financial advice. You don't know who they are. They could be complete strangers. You don't know what they've accomplished in their TSP. And it's very dangerous to take advice from uh, those types of sources. I would recommend to avoid those. The other thing is, too, as you age, to beware of the scammers, because that's an increasing problem for people at all economic scales, all socioeconomic scales. Yes. uh, I've had many friends and clients who are approached by uh, financial people uh, in all avenues of the financial industry from let me manage your TSP to selling you gold coins to selling you annuities. Uh, You have to be very, very careful with these solicitations. And look, you know, there's someone out there that's trying to scam someone on any level of your life. Uh, and you have to be watchful of that always. Yeah, this is Amazon reaching out. You need to update your payment methods, you know, this type of thing. Just It's it's incessant, and now they're doing uh, it by text and by email. I, I get three to four uh, scam emails a day, and my business account gets dozens of scam emails a day. Uh, it's just part of life. You have to tolerate it. You need to be watchful. And the best thing to do is to delete them. And the TSP and federal agencies offer resources to help people 
maximize and optimize their savings. And a lot of employees maybe overlook those services. Yes, the TSP website has 35 years of historical information on the TSP. And there are many webinars and uh, resources and articles and newsletters on the TSP. It, it's there for every federal employee and every federal retiree to take advantage of that resource. And yes, employees should just spend a little bit of time each week reviewing as much information from the TSP website. Very important. And it's apparently important to TSP reflecting what employees worry about because they publish the numbers of people that have reached that million-dollar mark, and that's kind of incentive to join the club. It's an elite club. It welcomes new members. There's always something that causes the market to have a little bit of a blip. But right now, it's coming back pretty strong through the end of this year. So you're going to see a lot more TSP millionaires. Well, in honor of the late Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway, who passed away just yeah. a few days ago, let's say, don't ever lose faith in the power of compounding, right? Yes, he was a big fan of the TSP. I heard him speak about it in several interviews. He saw it as a great opportunity for federal employees to take advantage of it. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and a trillionaire, I guess you might say, or triple millionaire is a better way to put it, owner of AG Financial Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.